Welcome back to another episode of Cleared for Takeoff. My name is Jason. It's the first weekend in October. It's raining outside, getting cold, getting windy, and sounds like a good time to sit down and listen to some stories in the news about aviation. We only got two for this week, but I think in in total they should uh, they should be good together and drum up some controversy. It'd be interesting to see what you guys think about both of these and what you would propose is the solution. So when you're done listening to this one, if you don't mind, head on over to facebook.com slash clear for takeoff. It'll be linked in the description. And let me know. Let me know what you think. Um, we'll get right into it here so you can see or get, uh, get a handle on what I'm talking about here. So this first story uh, comes, the copy I have comes from the Chicago Tribune. It's, uh, it's been all over the place. This is the one I, I hinted at a few weeks ago about controller air traffic controller fatigue. And before I start on the, this subject and the one coming in later, uh, I, have to, I have to put up a disclaimer. The information contained in both of these articles are not my own, as, as most of the stuff is not. You, you guys know that. I always try to credit where I get the story from. And I always link them in the description uh, so that they know that they're getting credit for it. But I have to be abundantly clear um, because of the nature of the stories that these stories came from the Chicago Tribune and the Seattle Times by way of the Associated Press for the story coming up later. And beyond what is written in this story, I will try to address as much as I can my personal opinion that is not back supported or endorsed in any way by the FAA uh, or any controller body, but just thoughts that I have on the scenario as a pilot and and a utilizer of the air traffic system. Uh, I grew up in an aviation family, so we're intimately involved with the air traffic system as pilots, obviously. So anything that I say in this is just purely opinionated and not based in any kind of... Uh, backing or sponsorship of any kind. So now that we got all the rigmarole out of the way, the Chicago Tribune did this, did a, not a study, did a story uh, as a result of a study. And the opening line reads as such, quote, air traffic controllers work schedules often lead to chronic fatigue, making them less alert and endangering the safety of the national air traffic system. According to a study, the government has kept secret for nearly four years. End quote. Um, that's not good. <laughs> you guys all know that, but... And, and I, we all know that the government hides stuff from us. That's just part of the system. But when it reads in here further, the study, that, uh, the study found that nearly two out of every ten controllers had committed quote-unquote significant errors in the previous year, such as bringing planes too close together, and over half of them attributed the errors to fatigue. A third of the controllers said they perceived fatigue to be a quote-unquote high or extreme safety risk. That's just, that's obviously bad news, and, and the fact that it hasn't made its way until recently to the uh, public forefront should should be alarming for sure. I mean, this is this is a public safety issue here. I mean, controllers' uh, sleep patterns and whatnot, if they directly or indirectly adversely affect the flow of the air traffic system, that is 
indirectly or directly uh, detrimental to our, the general public's safety, uh, productivity. You know, the, the world is, is a much smaller place now because of air travel. And, you know, if, they, if it's causing delays, that costs money. If it's, like it says in here, bringing planes too close together, that's potentially dangerous. And it's just public lives in the hands of the controllers. So I'm not blaming the controllers, don't get me wrong, but for the, for the government to have conducted the study or had the study conducted, got the results, and then not told anybody about it, that seems super sketchy, obviously. So let's get into what this actually is here for just just a second. The FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, officials had declined to furnish a copy of the report despite repeated requests on a Freedom of Information Act request by the Associated Press. However, they were the Associated Press was able to obtain a draft of the final report dated December 1st of 2011. So we're coming up on five years ago. The impetus of the the impetus or the the intent rather for the study was a recommendation by the National Transportation Safety Board to the FAA and to the National Air Traffic Controllers Association (NATCA), the the um, union governing body for the bargaining unit, and it was a a recommendation on their part to revise controller schedules to provide rest periods that are, quote, long enough to obtain sufficient restorative sleep, end quote. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, we need to establish what is happening currently. It says in here, overall, or it says uh, that in the study, controllers reported they were averaging 5.8 hours of sleep per day over the course of a work week and they averaged only 3.25 hours before some shifts. Well, how is that possible? Well, here's what their work week looks like. Researchers concentrated on controllers. First of all, that should be a, a red flag right there. The statement that says, in the field study, researchers concentrated on controllers, dot, dot, dot. So that, that means in part that it was a selected group of studied candidates to fit their narrative. That's an opinion I'm making. That's not written in this story. However, if you're trying to say, let's put it into something topical. If you're trying to do a poll or a study to see that you believe that the vast majority of people under the age of 30 use iPhones and all you do is go survey people outside of the Apple store during the release of the new iPhone to see what ages they are, and you find out that 90% of the people out in front of the Apple store are under 30, well, then that satisfies your requirement that the majority of people under 30 use iPhones. But that's a skewed study because it's not encompassing of all other people that, say, weren't out there. Now, if you went to 100 major university campuses where you can almost guarantee you have an under 30 demo and just ask on the street blindly, what kind of phone do you use? And you find out that 70% of them are iPhones. Then you have a legitimate study and result based on the the thought that people under 30 use iPhones, the majority of which. See the difference there? And so when the study here says that... It, um, it focused or concentrated on controllers, in this case, who worked a schedule known as the Rattler. Okay, well, what about the other schedule types? Are their sleep patterns not messed up? Are they just as bad? Are they worse? And the problem is, if we found out later on that controllers that don't fall into this Rattler schedule, that's a, a, just a street term for it, we found out that they, they don't fall into this Rattler schedule and their sleep patterns are not, or rather are worse than, well, that discredits to a point the severity of this study. Maybe it's a, a sleep deprivation problem across the entire controlling force. 
or we find out that those that aren't on the Rattler schedule have no sleep problems. Okay, now we have a different answer that this is the most severe of the issue. Let's address it that way. So that's my first um, my first issue with the way that this is written. But let's continue with what they've got. We'll give them, we'll, we'll take them at face value here. So in the field study, research is concentrated on controllers who worked a schedule known as the quote-unquote Rattler, in which controllers squeeze five eight-hour shifts, just like everybody else that works on nine-to-five, quote-unquote, just leave it at that, five eight-hour shifts. Difference is they squeeze them into four 24-hour periods. So uh, my controller friends say basically we work five shifts in four days. Makes sense the way that's written. And they do so by cutting the turnaround time between shifts to as little as eight hours. Now, from the research I've found, that is a requirement. You have to have, between certain shifts, a minimum of eight hours from the time you sign out at work to the time you sign back in. That is a requirement. It's not eight hours at home. It's not eight hours of sleep. It's eight hours of off-duty time. What you do with that time is completely up to you. But if you sign out at noon you can be required to sign back in at 8 p.m. That's how it works. It's a government position. They, they set the rules. However, some people like that. Some of the controllers like that because it, uh, it revolves or it ends up giving them a basically a three-day weekend. And so here's how that's possible. Basically, the way the system works, from my understanding, is on your... We'll just use a Monday through Friday schedule. So you're off Saturdays and Sundays, which is not the case for most controllers. Some controllers work uh, weekdays off, a weekend and a weekday. They're always back-to-back for a standard schedule, obviously, mind you that. Excuse me. They're always back-to-back, but they're not necessarily weekends. But to keep it simple, we're going to do weekends. So when you go to work on Monday, your first shift starts usually around 2.30 in the afternoon. On Monday. So you'll work, say, 2.30 in the afternoon to 10.30 at night. Then your Tuesday will be 12.30 in the afternoon to 8.30 at night. Wednesday would be 6.30 in the morning to 2.30 in the afternoon. Thursday, you come in at 5.30 in the morning, work to 1.30 in the afternoon, and then come back Thursday afternoon, or Thursday night rather, at 10 o'clock, Eight, uh, yeah, eight and a half hours later, um, come back at 10 o'clock at night and work 10 to 6, what would be off at 6 o'clock Friday morning, and you're done. Hence, five shifts in four days. And then when you're off at 6 a.m. Friday morning, you're now all of Friday to yourself, all of Saturday, all of Sunday, and the first half or so of Monday because you don't start until 2.30 or 3 o'clock-ish. So that's basically how a Rattler schedule works. Well, a lot of controllers like that because they have that long weekend period and you can do with it whatever you want. If you get off work at six o'clock on your Friday in the morning and you want to just take off out of town, that's your own prerogative. You're not required to sleep. And you could effectively have three and a half days off roughly. So that's how that works. And it's been that way for a long time, as far as I can tell. Well, the study was composed of 3,268 controllers, and it was to study their work schedules, sleep habits, and a field study that monitored the sleep and the mental alertness of more than 200 controllers of that group at 30 different air traffic facilities in the country. Those controllers that were participating wore a wrist device that recorded when they were asleep, and they also kept logs of their sleep and were administered alertness tests at several times during the work shift. Schedules worked by 76% of the controllers in the field study led to chronic fatigue creating uh, pressures to fall asleep. The report says, quote, even with 8 to 10 hours of recovery sleep, alert le- uh, excuse me, alertness may not recover to the full rested baseline level, but may be reset at a lower level of function, end quote. The 270-page study made 17 recommendations 
to the FAA in regards to sleep studied problems. Before we get to those recommendations, let me read here a couple of studies or a couple of incidents that caused this uh, study to take place. The study was completed after several months of of uh, different incidents involving controllers falling asleep on the bo- on the job rather. And some of you may re- remember uh, a few years back that the FAA, or rather the head of the agency's air traffic organization, res- uh, resigned after an, an incident of controllers falling asleep. It was just an embarrassment to the agency. Two incidents come to mind, one of which being in 2011 when two airliners, two jets, or, you know, airline jets, landed at Washington's Reagan National Airport, which is one of the busiest airports in the country, late at night without the assistance from the control tower. So in other words, they landed without a landing clearance, which otherwise would be either in the case of an emergency or um, not allowed. That's a violation of the rule of the regulations for a pilot to land without a clearance other than in cases of emergency, which I would argue is probably the case here because the tower controller or the one lone controller that was working at the time had fallen asleep and they had tried calling multiple times to get a landing clearance and never did. So these two airliners just landed on their own. That's obviously bad, especially at a busy airport. I'll be in the middle of the night. Reagan's probably not, uh, you know, crazy busy, but it's a complex airport. It's got lots of taxiways and multiple runways and whatnot. It, it could be an incident for sure. Excuse me. Uh, the another another incident here. Where did I lost it? Um, anyway, so after the incidents, there was another one that uh, they had to land on their own. I, I can't find in here again where it says it. So. Uh, We'll just move on without it. It says, uh, After the instance, the FAA and the controllers' unions announced several changes to address the fatigue. And two of which being that there must be at least two controllers on duty after midnight and that controllers must be provided at least nine hours of rest between the shifts prior to... uh, It's either prior to a midnight shift or after a midnight shift. I can't remember the difference, but... That was one of their distinctions. Well, here's the problem. The In that 270-page study that made 17 recommendations, some of which included that the agency discontinue mandatory six-day schedules. Well, here's the interesting thing is it said in the beginning that the researchers concentrated on controllers that worked the Rattler schedule five shifts in four days. So why are they combating the six-day schedule if that wasn't their study? Well, it says here that more than 30% of controllers who worked the six-day schedules said that they had committed a significant error in the previous year. The six-day schedules oftentimes result in all midnight shift work or multiple midnight shift work with, with other changes in the, in the, uh, the schedule to work, like similar Rattler schedule, but all midnight. So they, they claim here that 30% or more had significant errors in air traffic operation in the previous year. Three years later, controllers at several air traffic facilities told the Associated Press that six-day work weeks were still common. If FAA officials had not replied to questions from the Associated Press about steps the agency had taken to reduce controller fatigue and the prevalence of six-day work weeks. The FAA also refused to share the report with researchers from national academies, which advises Congress on scientific issues. The, the incidents after, or rather after the incidents, they announced several changes to address the fatigue, like I said, changing it to a nine-hour shift and two people working after midnight. But after the Transportation Safety Board told the FAA in 2013, quote, we are concerned that given the realities of the time required for an employee to commute home and back to work 
and to attend to personal and family needs, a nine-hour break may not allow enough time for an employee to obtain eight hours continuous sleep. So the problem is they need to figure out, do they need eight hours of off-duty time or eight hours of dedicated sleep? So in my, in my research, they found that... Uh, or that I found that, that some of the implementations are what they refer to as fatigue, mitig- geez, fatigue mitigation. And the, the recommendation in here that there be two people on two controllers working after midnight, I found that sometimes that is the case. And other times there are two controllers assigned. But the way fatigue mitigation works in my, in my uh, research is the two controllers come in and work from whenever the afternoon shift ends, 10, 11 o'clock, whatever it is, um, through to about midnight or one, roughly, give or take. And at which point, uh, the one controller goes to take a break for a couple hours. They're still readily available. They can be recalled by the, by the controller in position at any time. I would assume this happens at smaller facilities. I honestly don't know. I'm not claiming to know how this works, but I would gather if they were really busy, you would want both of them up there. But at any time, the controller working can recall the controller on break and use them for you know multiple, multiple people in the tower for safety. And so that happens for a couple of hours, and then they switch. So the controller that's been on comes down, and they're on break for a few hours, and the other one goes up and works by themselves, but able to recall them at any time. So that's what I want to know from you guys. Does that work? Is that enough? Is that sufficient for multiple people working after midnight, the ability to recall another controller immediately, not have to like call them in from home kind of thing, that they are both technically on duty? And do you think that that could solve the mitigation or the, the uh, fatigue problem. It says in here that the most tiring schedules require controllers to work five straight midnight shifts or work six days a week, several weeks in a row, often with at least one midnight shift per week. I have an issue with the way that that statement is written. I understand that the next sentence in this paragraph is, quote, the human's body, circadian rhythms, make sleeping during daylight hours before a midnight shift especially difficult, end quote. I get that. But if you're working nothing but midnight shifts five days a week, your body will adjust to that. And the circadian rhythms aren't necessarily a major problem. There are Millions of people in Alaska that during this five or six months of summer when the sun never actually goes down sleep just fine because they're adapted to it. And if you work nothing but midnight shifts, your body will adapt to sleeping from, say, six in the morning to noon or whatever your your sleep requires. And not everybody requires eight hours of sleep. But if you were if you sleep six to noon when you get off work and then you do your thing the rest of the day and you go into work at 10 o'clock at night, that's no different than somebody that sleeps from 10 at night to 5 or so in the morning and gets up and goes to their 9 to 5, in my opinion. When I, I spent time in the military and had schedules like that, you just deal with it. And it's, I'm not trying to make it sound like these people aren't having problems, because obviously it is. We had the issue of the two people, um, uh, had, the two airliners had to land at Reagan National without, without a landing clearance. That's obviously bad. In 2006, an accident in which a regional airliner crashed while taking off from a runway that was too short in Lexington, Kentucky. 49 of the 50 people on board perished. The air traffic controller who, did, who had cleared the plane for takeoff didn't notice it turn onto the wrong runway. That controller had worked all night and had only had two hours of sleep in the previous 24 hours. Well, that, that statement, while potentially true, and we have to take it for what it's worth here in the story, doesn't paint the whole picture. Why did that controller only have two hours of sleep? Was it because when they got off of their shift the day before, they went out and um, went fishing with their buddies and, and got to bed late? I mean, it doesn't. you don't even have to go to, to the extreme of, oh, they were out partying and drinking until 3 a.m. Let's just take that completely aside, because there's lifestyles and people that 
have things to do in their day or their or things that they like to do, whether it's kids' baseball games or I like to go, uh, you know, I like to go ride my motorcycle in the afternoon as the sun's setting because it's, you know, it's relaxing or whatever. It, that's why I'm saying that the, the issue of the statement in here that the nine-hour break between certain shifts is not enough because with commutes and this, that, and the other thing doesn't allow for eight hours of continuous sleep doesn't paint the whole story because a not everybody requires that amount of sleep. I know personally for me, I work I function just fine on about five to six hours, regardless of the schedule and when it happens. And B, unfortunately, this is a part of the job. Air traffic controllers, when they sign up to this job, understand that air traffic is a 24-hour, 365 operation, depending on what facility you're at. I know that there are some that close at night. But for the vast majority, is a 24-365 operation that comes with these hurdles. I'm not saying we don't need to mitigate them and figure out a way to, to address it. But the other big problem is in here, when, when the Associated Press story shows that we need more time off between shifts, we need multiple people working after midnight, uh, we need to to eliminate six-hour or six-day work weeks or 10-hour days, and yet every year for the last three years, around this time of the year, by the way, the agency and the controller body is faced with a potential sequestration and government shutdown and or withholding of funding because they can't afford to pay everybody everything on every uh, program and system out there so they have to make cuts somewhere to make their bottom line by the end of September and when that happens now we have uh, controllers that are working extra hours and not getting paid for them now morale's down or whatever the case may be or they say look we just can't afford to to support the 16,000 strong controller body so we need to cut 10 percent so 1600 people get to go home now they're out of a job but the other, the other 15 or 14,000 people or what, what have you have to pick up the slack. The clock does not stop ticking, and the airplanes do not stop moving. And if they do, if the airplanes quit moving, your ticket prices go up, you have more delays at the airlines. That, I mean, if we take it just down to the bare basics and talk about the public demand and the airline operation, because that is the vast majority of who uses the air traffic system, if you reduce controller workforce, the number of people doing it, to meet a bottom line budget issue because the government can't figure out how to spend their money wisely, and we have to either cut shifts, cut days, cut pay, cut people, that results in delays with the airlines, reduced number of routes, increased cost because now they're trying to put more people on, on or in less available number of seats. It's bad all the way around. And so while this is a fatigue study, I think it's a much bigger picture and much bigger problem talking about the availability of the workforce. I think that is the hardest problem. And if, the, if it comes all, my dad told me years, taught me years ago, do you want to know the answer to any question? Follow the money. And so if it came down to something where the FAA had more better and more and more stable sustainable funding that could afford to hire train and employ more controller force it could potentially result in no 6 day work weeks no 10 hour work days less um, multiple midnight shift routines you know, people that work 3 4 5 midnights a, a week um, the ability to have two or three or four controllers on an overnight shift and thus increasing safety in the public domain of the air travel because there is more redundancy. That's the hardest problem. So that's my two cents on the whole issue. What do you think? It's, uh, it's obviously an issue. It's obviously a problem. 20% of the controllers studied had quote-unquote significant errors in the previous year. Um, by air traffic definition, that doesn't mean that airplanes crashed into each other and burned into a, you know, burst into a ball of flame. Uh, that means that potentially they became, while they were in the air, they were closer than three miles. 
Technically, 2.9 miles is a quote-unquote significant error, but 3 miles is not. That 3 miles is legal, 2.9 is not. So, I'm, I'm not saying that it's right. I'm not trying to excuse it, because obviously that issue or that incident from 2006 that I talked about resulted in loss of life. That's bad. I don't, I'm not discrediting it. Um, it's just a skewed story, in my opinion, at least the way I'm reading it. And I'd, I'd like, honestly, if you guys go read it, and read something other than what I'm what I'm getting out of it. Let me know, because that's the the beauty of the forum, uh, is that every every opinion is welcome on here, and every thought process it will be received and broken down, and either a uh, you know uh, confronted or uh, agreed with. You never know, but it needs to be talked about because this study has been done for coming up on five years now and nobody's known about it until recently and the problem is usually stuff like this and regulations and such are written in blood that's that's just a uh, a fact of the the cost of doing business i guess is the the best way i can put it it's rather crass but that's the fact of the matter well i do have one proposed change for you that could help. I won't say that it could solve, but it could help that issue. Controller fatigue, lack of funding, having to work extra days, extra hours, ridiculous schedules. What if we just got rid of the controllers themselves? I'm not saying gone completely, because I don't believe, at least in my, my, my lifetime, I don't believe in my lifetime you will ever see two things. In my lifetime, you will never see a pilotless airliner, like we talked about a few weeks back on the show with the unmanned stuff. You will never see in in my lifetime, and probably my kid's lifetime that I don't have yet, you will probably never see a passenger-carrying commercial airliner without a pilot in it, and you will probably never see completely autonomous, uh, unmanned air traffic system. It's just not a reality. However... Saab, you know, like the people that make those cars that a lot of you drive. Yeah, Saab makes a lot of things other than cars, including airplanes, by the way. But Saab has been working on a technology to allow for remote air traffic control tower systems. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. In April, after a year and a half of testing on a system designed by Saab, all of the controllers at some place I can't even come close to pronouncing. It's, let's see, let's try here. Ornskolzvik. Ornskolzvik? Let's go with Ornskolzvik. I have no idea. So let's go on Ornskolzvik Airport in Sweden. They, they don't have controllers there. And after a year and a half of testing the controllers at Ornskolzvik, I don't know why I say that with an accent. Is that offensive? I'm sorry. But they left the airport. The controllers left. And in its place, people flying in and out of Ornskulvik, Sweden, might catch a glimpse of a control tower and be likely unaware that there's nobody there. Nobody inside. And that's because it's now an 80-foot-tall mast housing 14 high-definition cameras that send the signals back to controllers stationed at Sundsvall Airport. Not even on the same field. Such system has not eliminated the jobs, but has instead allowed tiny airports to pool together their controllers and work in one central area, thus increasing manning. Doesn't increase manning per airport by design. However, for the airports that are really slow, that only operate maybe one airplane an hour overnight... That one can be combined with an airport that, say, works 10 airplanes an hour overnight. Now you have 11 airplanes an hour, and those two people can run it instead of one at each. Interesting concept. It says in here that, quote, uh, actually, that's a different company. I'm not going to get to that yet. Saab is not the only people doing this. There's a couple different companies. It says in here, though, 
that a dozen commercial planes land at Ornsvik. Orn, Orn, Ornskoldsvik. I have no idea. I'm sorry. Um, a dozen commercial airplanes land there each day. And instead of talking to a controller that is sitting in a building looking out the window at them, they're being watched by cameras and guided by controllers viewing the video at another airport 90 miles away. Ornskulvik is the first airport in the world to use such technology, and other airports in Europe are testing the idea, as is one here in the States. Did you know that? Did you know that you could potentially be flying into an airport here in the United States that does not have controllers at it? Well, let me rephrase that a little bit, because if you're flying on the airlines, you potentially are operating into an airport that does not have controllers. There are still some, not many, but some airports that are not busy enough to warrant having a controller body and a control, and a control tower, because as the report says, control towers are expensive. Um, it just, and so you might, if it's really uh, not busy, the airlines will often or will sometimes just operate to them. And, and what happens is... They talk when they get to said airport. The pilots just talk to each other and figure out who's going to land. Just make sure nobody takes off while you're landing, or so on and so forth. That airport, whether you knew it or not, also brought to you by Saab, is Leesburg Executive Airport in Virginia, and it's quote unquote relatively busy, operating roughly 300 takeoffs and landings each day. It's only a few miles from Dulles International Airport and it does not have its own control tower. Not really unusual. At the moment, regional air traffic controllers at Washington Center, also at, uh, in the vicinity of Dulles, but they, they operate in a, in a dark room with computer screens. Regional air traffic controllers clear private jets and so forth into the airspace, and then the pilots use established radio frequencies to, as the story says, quote-unquote, negotiate the landing and takeoff order. Um, I, that's just a funny way of reading it. Problem is, that often leads to delays. So Saab has built a system for Leesburg, and on the 3rd of October, that's not even a true statement, because today is the 3rd of October. On the 3rd of August, is what the story says, they started a three-month test with the FAA. FAA controllers will at first familiar, familiarize themselves with the technology, and just observe and watch the planes operating as they already do, talking to each other, no controller intervention. If the FAA approves of this process, the next phase would be to start clearing planes onto the taxiways and take off and land from the runways. Awesome. Absolutely incredible. And if it works, decreasing delays and increasing workflow to this airport. A small airport at that, only one, but this could be monumental in my opinion the companies building these remote systems say their technology is cheaper and better than traditional control towers the cameras are housed in a glass bubble high pressure air flows over the windows keeping them from clear of insects rain snow and what have you and have been tested to severe temperatures from minus 22 to positive 122 degrees fahrenheit Saab is currently testing and seeking regulatory approval for remote systems in Norway and Australia and has contracts to develop the technology for another Swedish airport and two more in Ireland. A competitor called Sea Ridge is working on a remote tower for the main airport in Budapest, Hungary, the airport at which serves 8.5 million passengers annually and within two years, controllers could be stationed a few miles from the airport not even working at the same physical location. NATCA, mentioned in the last story, the controlling union, the National Air Traffic Controllers Association says it's participating in the testing and that... Uh, oh, I missed my step here. It says here they are participating in the testing. That's the end of the sentence. My bad. As I stated earlier, towers for large commercial airports are expensive, the study says. They need elevators, air conditioning and heating, fire suppression systems, plus room for all the controllers. For example, 
Some of you might notice that a new tower at Oakland International Airport in California opened uh, just uh, just under two years ago, back in 2013. And that tower cost $51 million. $51 million. $51 million. For those of you who don't know, there is a new tower being built at this moment, while this story is being recorded, in San Francisco. That project is north of $100 million, a large chunk of which is being paid by the city of San Francisco. You can do your own deductive reasoning to figure out where that money came from. And a large chunk of it paid for by the FAA. Also figure out where that money came from. Like I said, follow the money. Towers at smaller airports are obviously cheaper. They're not nearly as big and don't need as much sophisticated equipment. For example, Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport opened a new one back in February, and it cost a measly $15.5 million. Still a lot of money. Saab itself will not, will not detail the cost of the systems, except to say that it is quote-unquote significantly less because there is no need for a tower or an elevator. The companies seek a huge market. Just in the United States alone, a vast majority of U.S. commercial airports, 315 of the 506 that we have, have control towers. However, only 198 of the 2,825, almost 3,000, only 200 of the roughly 3,000 general aviation airports have manned towers. And the thought being that in airports, or in areas rather, such as Sacramento, for instance, Sacramento International Airport, which flies obviously commercial jets and whatnot, is in relatively close proximity to a half dozen or so little airports, a couple of which have towers, others of which don't. The towers don't operate 24 hours a day at said little airports. And there's a large facility in the vicinity of of those airports that operates the airspace for the vast majority of the northern half of California. From basically, give or take, uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco area, all the way to uh, Oregon is where that area is operated. So that building that has some 200 controllers in it could have an additional wing to support the 30, I would put a guess on, maybe more, little tiny airports that don't have a ton of traffic that are in that vicinity of the northern half of California and now would have controller input and influence on the flow of traffic there, making it safer and more fluid for everybody and not costing the agency or the taxpayers or the city any more money in building control towers, retrofitting towers, paying controller salaries. On that note, Ornsklovik Airport in Sweden is a virtual lifeline for the residents who want to get to Stockholm and the rest of the world. Sounds like the little airports around Sacramento, albeit Sacramento itself has a big airport. But let's say you live in the little grass towns north of Sacramento. There are airports up there. They don't have control towers, but they could be served by the big facility in Sacramento. Very same is said for Ornsklovik Airport in Sweden. But at just 80,000 annual passengers, it can't justify the cost of a full-time controller staff, let alone the facility, the control tower building itself, which we saw earlier, can be 15 to $50 million or more. They, they, they uh, speculate that the full-time controller staff salary for Ornslovic Airport by itself is about $175,000 a year Per controller, what would be six of them if they actually had a staffing, for salary, benefits, and taxes of each controller. Now instead, they have an 80-foot tall tower with 14 high-definition airport or cameras. And it costs significantly less, quote-unquote, according to Saab. There is a little bit of a learning curve, I will tell you that much. And from the study, it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty funny, actually, what they say. But according to it, there's a little bit of a learning curve, and they say, quote-unquote, old habits are hard to break. Here's why. Despite the, abil- despite the ability to zoom in. So imagine, because these, these, these controllers are looking at, 50, in this case, 55-inch television screens that produce the image that you would see 
out of a control tower that is not there. They're off-site somewhere. And you have the ability, like on your computer, to zoom, you know, zoom in close on what is ever, quote-unquote, out the window. However, despite the ability to zoom in, the controllers instinctively grab their binoculars to get a closer look at what's out the window. Controllers do this all the time. They, they grab binoculars to look down at the taxiway and verify that whoever's calling ready to take off is in fact number one or what the order is. Or to find an airplane out the window that's getting ready to land and make sure they have wheels down, the landing gear is down so that they can land safely. Um, controllers do this all the time. Look out the window with binoculars. It's very common. So these controllers that are operating this Ornsklovic Airport system out of uh, Sunsvall Airport, they grab binoculars to get a closer look at the images on the TV screens. So they grab binoculars and look at the computer monitor to get a closer look, even though they have the ability to pinch the zoom kind of thing and bring it in even closer than binoculars could. I actually had an opportunity to see what this would look like, but as a simulation, they train a lot of facilities and the military included train controllers on simulators of control towers. So basically, there's a bunch of large monitors that are uh, configured in a half circle or sometimes all the way around that are then projected images of an air traffic control tower in an airport and there are little airplanes that taxi around on the ground and fly and it's like playing flight simulator but from the controller's perspective. And you could actually take those and zoom all the way in on the airplane to where the airplane fills the entire screen, something you couldn't do with binoculars necessarily. So they are still using their binoculars despite the ability to zoom because it's, that's a, a controller instinct. And they had to pipe, they had to include two microphones at the Ornslavik airport to pipe in the sounds of airplanes because the head of... Why can't I find this page? Oh, the head of traffic management for Saab, Anders Karp, said, quote, without the sound, the air traffic controllers felt lost. That just cracks me up. Um, it's, it just, it's funny that that is an issue. So there you go. Is that the, does that solve the problem? Would we be better off Here's the question I want to pose to you. And please, go on to the facebook.com slash clear for takeoff. And I want to pose this question to you. Would having a large controller workforce concentrated into a few uh, large locations that are consolidated, let's say, Let's say each major facility, and this would, this would be totally different around the country, but let's say each major facility uh, had a few major airports, Chicago, for instance. So they got O'Hare, they got Midway, they've got all the little executive airports around it. But let's say that the central air traffic hub out of Chicago operated the major airports and 40 small satellite airports around it. And they did so in a massive building that has multiple wings with computer monitors that are surveying each of those airports, the smaller ones that don't have control towers. Would it be better to have a large controller concentration in a building like that to operate all of them or keep it the way it is and have small controller concentration at each facility like they are currently, but with more bodies? The problem with the second option is the funding. Like I said, we got to follow the dollar. And if there isn't enough money to train and hire more controllers to staff places that only require one or two people to work the facility because they're not that busy, then how do we remedy that problem? Okay, well, in the case of, let's say, for instance, uh, Grand Canyon Airport in Arizona, Grand Canyon Airport's tiny. And it's not, it's not very busy. It's usually just small general aviation airplanes and some flight school airplanes. There is a control tower there. And it's staffed by FAA government air traffic controllers. I don't know if they're 24-hour or not. I haven't, haven't looked into it. But it, would it be better to have one or two people working that tower 24 hours a day? Not, not one person working 24 hours, obviously. But 
you know, if you had two people on all the time, 24 hours a day, or would it be better to consolidate those controllers into Phoenix, let's say, just south of there, and Phoenix would work Phoenix and Deer Valley and Grand Canyon and everything, and now you've got a workforce of 100 controllers that can work all of them in rotation of some kind. That's the question. But as it stands right now, Leesburg Executive Airport in Virginia does not have controllers actually working there, but could very soon have controllers operating there while being somewhere else. Interesting concept. And hopefully it helps the fatigue problem. Um, I can only imagine that that's an issue, but I'm glad the story's out. And I'll, like, I, like I always do, I'll link the, the two stories in the uh, description below. Go ahead and read them. See what you think. It's, uh, it's an issue that definitely needed to be brought to the forefront, and some people like Saab are trying to help solve it. That's going to do it for today, for this week. First weekend in October. It's a rainy season. Fall is among us. Snow is on its way. And I'm declaring, as of today, we are officially in the holiday season. So bring on Christmas. And anyway, that's going to do it for me. This has been Cleared for Takeoff. You guys have been awesome. Facebook.com slash Cleared for Takeoff. SoundCloud, iTunes. You know where we are. We know you're listening. Leave a comment. Head on over to iTunes. Rate. Subscribe. Let us know how we're doing. There's no comment, no uh, ratings and uh or comments over there on iTunes yet, and that, that really helps us a lot. People lets people know that we're legit and lets iTunes know that you guys are actually listening to us. But until next time, have fun, be safe, check out these stories, let me know what you think, and I will catch you guys next week on Clay for Takeoff. See ya!